Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening, and welcome to episode 000082 of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host, broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands. And as we all know, Radio City Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, um, this is the mission, a program dedicated to driving conversations on issues that impact on First Nations people and those at the wrong end of the social justice arc in this country. I haven't got around to them just yet. It's been First Nations all the way down so far, but uh, maybe 2021 will um, uh, open up some of those issues and I'll um, broaden the show a little bit. But we don't raise these issues confronting First Nations people by posting memes and expecting change. We don't do it by attacking each other, either within our own communities or those allies of ours out in the world trying to do things with us, not for us. We do it by having respectful, in-depth conversations about issues that matter, conversations that are often difficult, but conversations that need to be had. And so we'll be having some of those conversations on the show this evening. So shortly I'll be joined by Professor Hugh Taylor. He's the Professor of Indigenous Eye Health at the University of Melbourne. Last week he and his colleagues released a report on their annual update on the implementation of a roadmap to close the gap in vision for Aboriginal people. So we'll explore that issue by first asking, why is there a gap in eye health between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people? And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Damian Griffiths, Chief Executive Officer of the First Peoples Disability Network of Australia. The Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability is underway, and this week it has heard from First Nations people with a disability, and they have been telling the Commission about the structural violence they experience in the child protection system in particular. So we'll talk to Damien about that, and um, a warning, it might be uh, might be difficult listening, um, so just um, bear that in mind, because the uh, from what I've been hearing, and I've been following it quite closely over the last few days, the, the child protection system in particular is not geared towards dealing with First Nations people with with a disability. So, but life being complicated as it is, we must acknowledge that um, today is actually a good day because today is the day we actually say, that we can actually say we beat the second wave of the COVID virus and that it is over with the uh, triple donuts that we... uh, all saw announced today by the Department of Health and Human Services. That's quite an amazing treatment, and I think it goes some way to showing that despite some loud, annoying, screechy voices, we do indeed live in a community that decided to put the community first. And it shows that when we really want to, we can solve big problems that can be seemingly insurmountable. So that's why I humbly submit that we can do the same thing when addressing the issues that appear overwhelming when it comes to the impact they have on First Nations people. 
we can do this by not pigeonholing these issues as black or as white. We can do it by realising that we have a collective responsibility to each other, just like we have shown over the last eight months. It requires a change in mindset for many of us, but now would be a great time to capitalise on that new sense of community I believe now exists around this place. So this is the mission. We do um, our little bit on this show to develop that understanding, to share meaning, and hopefully to instigate change. And so today is a great day to start that. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. And to our first guest this evening. Now, you all know about the Closing the Gap agenda, but in the main, we hear about uh, many of the headline items, such as literacy rates, school completion rates, economic participation, and, of course, the gap in life expectancy itself. What is less talked about are some of the very specific targets and very precise areas that, um, if addressed, make an enormous difference to people's lives and enables them to live full and rich lives. One of these areas is eye health. Now, vision loss accounts for about 11% of the gap in health, and most importantly, this gap is amenable to treatment. A pair of glasses can improve a person's quality of life, and cataract surgery can restore sight overnight. And with this in mind, last week, the annual update on the implementation of the roadmap to close the gap for vision um, was released. And here to talk about that is Melbourne Laureate, uh, University of Melbourne Laureate Professor Hugh Taylor. Hugh is the Harold Mitchell Professor of Indigenous Eye Health at the University of Melbourne. His work particularly focuses on Aboriginal eye health and the elimination of uh, trachoma. And Professor Taylor has written 30 books and reports, including a recent book on trachoma <laughs> and more than 600 scientific papers uh, related to this subject field. Now, I could go on and on about his qualifications and his achievements, but that would leave me no time to speak to the man himself. So, Hugh, welcome to the mission. Oh, Derek, thank you very much. I'm glad you stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I could have gone on and on and on and on and on and on. But anyway, yeah. look. Um, but I'm really pleased to be able to talk with you and your listeners. Uh, look, you're a, you're a great advocate um, in this area here, and you have been for many years, so I'm very, very appreciative that you're on the show. Um, first of all, let's start with the, the very basics. Why is there a gap in the quality of eye health between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians? Well, basically, it's because people are not getting the eye care that they need. We found when we, we looked at this 10 years or so ago, that 94% of the vision loss was unnecessary. It could be prevented or treated. And as you said, you know, a pair of glasses you see right away, cataract surgery you can see the next day. Most of it can be fixed overnight. And the other thing we found was that the unmet need in the remote areas was the same as it was in the towns and cities. And in, you know, remote communities like Fitzroy Crossing, obviously we need to get more optometrists and ophthalmologists and eye care but in Fitzroy, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service is just across the road from the Royal Victorian Eye and Hospital, the biggest eye hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. So, you know, we all got to do get people to go back and forth across the road. And so we, we actually found out that there were a lot of things involved in, in coordinating and providing culturally safe and accessible and affordable eye care to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people. And that led to our roadmap to close the gap provision. Now, you mentioned specifically one of your areas of expertise specifically is um, trachoma. Why is Australia 
perhaps the only developed country in the world where people still suffer from this condition? Well, trachoma used to be called sandy blight, and it disappeared from mainstream Australia 100 years ago as living conditions improved. But it's still a problem uh, in the remote communities in central Australia where the living conditions and the hygiene are poor. And one of the, you know, the, 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 it's an infection that's passed between, you know, little kids. And kids need to be infected maybe 150 times to end up getting the severe scarring and damage that leads to blindness. And the way to stop that is to keep every kid's face clean. And to do that, the kids need to have safe and functional washing facilities in the houses and at school. And the housing, the overcrowding, the poor repair and maintenance, the, the, the hygiene in these communities is just awful in many cases. And we know, we know that um, you know, overcrowding and housing in particular leads to so many different conditions, uh, particularly for, for, for Aboriginal people. Is, is enough being done to think outside the box and actually realise that uh, you know, crowded housing, particularly in uh, remote communities, is an issue? Are we seeing enough progress on that front? Uh, the answer is sort of yes and no. There is progress, but it's not enough. Uh, we've made some really good progress with trachoma. And, and, you know, in your introduction, one of the things, the really good things about the uh, uh, blindness and vision loss and eye care is it's an area in closing the gap where there's some real progress being made. And so we've taken the rate of trachoma from 21% in 2008 down. It's, it's 4.5% or so now. So mm. that's terrific, except... It's really plateaued over the last number of years. And the last step we need to do to actually close that gap or get rid of trachoma is fix up the repair and maintenance of the housing. So when the taps stop working or the drains get blocked, they get fixed right away and not taking three to six months waiting. Okay, so let's um, let's get to the to, to the most recent update. You've been uh, conducting um, updates to the roadmap to close the gap for vision since around about two thousand and thirteen, and you released the latest update last week, um, Friday, as a matter of fact. How are we tracking against some of uh, the key indicators? Well, we said that the pathway of care was sort of like a leaky pipe, but if we only stopped one or two leaks, the pipe would still be leaking. And we actually identified something like 42 recommendations or things that need to be done. And the good news is that we've got stuff going on uh, uh, over half of those, or 57% of the recommendations have been fully implemented. And of the intermediate steps, uh, some 84% of those have been implemented now as well. So that's really good progress, but... We still have more work to do to make sure we've got the proper services that are funded to meet the needs of each of the regions across the country for eye care. So we've still got more work to do, uh, but there is some really good progress that has been made. One of the things that the report um, shows is that cataract surgery for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians vary across the country with uh, urban regions recording consistently lower rates of population-based needs met compared with um, regional and remote areas. How, how is that the case? Well, I think in, in a number of the, the uh, regional and remote areas, there's been particular focus with the Aboriginal 
medical services or the uh, Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Services with the, the visiting ophthalmologists and optometrists. And that's been very much the model we've been working with, with this uh, regional stakeholder groups to make sure we get proper care. But in the towns and cities, many times the, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people need to rely on the public hospitals. And the public hospitals, uh, the waiting lists are often you know, uh, much longer for Indigenous patients than they are for non-Indigenous. That's waiting list for surgery. And then you've got the waiting list to actually get in to be seen in the outpatient clinic before you can get onto the surgical list. And so that's been a major problem across the country. There are some really great examples where progress has been made. And one of the best is the Royal Victorian Iron in Hospital, as we were in Tebbe 4, that have set up over the last uh, two years or so a terrific service with the uh, Victorian Aboriginal Health Service and fast-tracking cataract service. So we need to build that in all the rest of the major towns and cities around the country. It's probably too early to tell, uh, Professor, but um, the, the Victorian government uh, announced today that they were you know, spending a considerable amount of money on freeing up um, beds for um, elective surgery. Uh, would that be a, yep. a welcome development in this space? Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, obviously, with, yeah, obviously with COVID-19, um, the pandemic, there's been a hold-up of all sorts of elective surgery, uh, as well as routine exams, particularly you know, people who have diabetes who may need uh, to be examined or need injections into their eye to stop them going blind. Mm. And so... Uh, to, to speed up the elective surgery and to get those uh, routine examinations now back flowing again is really important. It is 20 past seven here on Triple uh, R, 102.7 FM. This is The Mission. My name is Daniel. I'm speaking with Professor Hugh Taylor, who is taking us through some of the aspects of the uh, Close the Gap for Vision. Um, report that is released every year by the University of Melbourne, talking about the um, hope, the um, inward steps that are being made to uh, tackle the gap in uh, eye health for uh, First Nations people. You mentioned before, um, Professor, that um, the uh, Aboriginal community health sector uh, has played a um, uh, is played a pivotal role. How important is the Aboriginal community controlled health sector to addressing some of these issues and providing access to things like eye checks and general screening, which may indeed pick up other um, problems with, with eye health? The, the, the uh, ATSO sector, the community control sector, is absolutely the foundation of eye care. It all starts in primary care. And the Commonwealth has funded... Uh, retinal cameras so that uh, people in the in the ATSOs can take the screening photographs of people with diabetes to see if they need eye disease. They're getting um, people having an adult health check or a health check, uh, get checked for vision. And what we've been looking at is trying to build the referral links to link primary care with the specialist services. And these are the regional models we've been developing We've now got the regional models uh, in place or developing in 59 of the 64 uh, regions that cover the whole country. So that's uh, you know really doing a super job covering over 90% of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population. And then we're looking at how do we develop that those population-based needs. So if there's a certain number of people in a community or a region, then they'll... Then a number of them will need to have uh, exams every year. A number of them will have diabetes and need to be checked. A number will have cataracts and need surgery. 
So we have to make sure that the services and facilities can meet that real population-based need. It sounds like there's there's reason for, for optimism on this front, um, but there's still more to be done. If, if you could wave a, a magic wand, what would be the, the key item that you would um, like to see funded and implemented? Well, I think, you know, we, we've got a lot of support from Greg Hunt, the, the Minister for Health, who, who really is quite passionate in this. And we estimate we need about another $10 million a year to really bring these services up to those population-based needs and develop the services in the rest of the uh, uh, regional areas and really help and empower the ATSOs to really link in in those other areas as well to provide that basic eye care. Well, I'm not sure Greg Hunt is a listener to the program, Professor, but um, I know that uh, many of uh, the listeners to this show would probably be residing within his electorate and uh, would uh, be politically active enough to actually reach out and advocate on behalf (laughs) of uh, this very important issue. Um, I'd like to take the time to thank you, uh, Hugh, for the the work you've done over the years. It's an area that you've dedicated your uh, life's work to, it would seem, and um, uh, I know you're very busy, and I thank you for developing this area of expertise, releasing these reports, and I'd like to thank you for your time this evening. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to talk to you and your listeners. And if Greg Hart stopped listening, he should really be, shouldn't be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's right. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I would like to make mention of uh, today's budget. Um, a massive spending budget, one that's uh, apparently designed to rebuild the state post-COVID, um, and I think we need all the rebuilding we can get. But let me, of course, focus in on what was announced today in relation to uh, Aboriginal Victoria. The budget um, announced today, the, the, the Treasury announced that uh, $357 million, which apparently is the biggest investment in support for Aboriginal communities at all, um, ever, uh, is aimed at um, uh, basically what the Treasurer describes as the torment of the powerlessness. Uh, we don't really know where that $357 million is going to be spent specifically, but um, over the coming weeks, I'm no doubt we'll get some people on this very program to talk us through some of uh, the, the the projects, the uh, initiatives and hopefully some of the outcomes that we can see from such a massive spend, it is actually a big spend. I know I've spent a bit of time in the Victorian Public Service and I can only, um, uh, back in the day, I would have only imagined uh, such a big spend in, in, in this particular space. So watch this space for update, updates on that. And in addition to that, um, they had announced a, a further $20 million to support greater self-determination and let more voices to be heard. I think that is something that is aimed fairly and squarely at the Victorian treaty process. There is now a lengthy consultation process that needs to occur to forward that agenda as we move towards actually negotiating a treaty with the uh, Victorian state government or local councils or whatever it might turn out to be. But that is a process that will cost some money and it's good to see that there has been some developments on that front. Are uh, you listening to the mission? We'll cover those issues around the budget in coming weeks, hopefully, if we get the, the right people 
on board. You're listening to the mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. Triple Now, the Disability Royal Commission was established in uh, April of 2019 in order to address community concern about widespread reports of violence against and the neglect and abuse of and exploitation of people with disability. These incidents might have happened recently or a long time ago, but the Disability Royal Commission has been investigating these matters with a specific, specific aim of preventing and better protecting people with disability from experiencing violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. Uh, the aim to achieve best practice in reporting, investigating and responding to violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability. And promoting a more inclusive society that supports people with disability to be independent and live free from violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. Now, this week, in its eighth hearing so far, the Royal Commission is focusing on the experiences of First Nations people with disability and their ability in and their dis, um, with disability and their families in contact with uh, the child protection system in particular. The First Peoples Disability Network of Australia is a national representative organisation for the first for First Peoples with disability, their families and their communities. They've made a submission to the Commission and have been doing a fantastic job in covering this week's hearings uh, on social media. Uh, I do encourage you to go and uh, look for the First People's Disability Network of Australia's Twitter handle. They've been doing a great job of keeping us up to date in real time. Now, Damien Griffiths is the CEO of the First People's Disability Network of Australia. He is a warrior man and a leading advocate for the human rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability. He's been a central figure in the establishment of both the Aboriginal Disability Network of New South Wales and the First Peoples Disability Network of Australia. And I'm very pleased to say that he's on the line now to speak to us about some of these matters. Damien, welcome to the mission. Hi, Daniel. First of all, um, thank you for the work that you do. Uh, this week's hearings have focused on the impact of the child protection system on First Nations people with disability. You've described the child protection system as hostile and complicated. Um, describe the issues First Nations people with disability confront when dealing with the child protection, with child protection systems across the country. Sure, well, the, the situation for most First Nations children with disability and also First Nations families uh, with the out-of-home care system is one of a very paternalistic system that's often influenced by both racism and ableism. So what plays out is the double disadvantage that many First Nations children with disability face. And we say it's a system that's still largely based on surveillance and not one of support. Mm. And some of the testimony that's been before the Royal Commission this week has been um, very distressing in the last couple of days. Yeah, I've been following it um, uh, closely, Damien, and it, and it has been very um, stressing. And particularly, I found today that the um, the testimony of uh, Thelma Swartz, who is the Principal Legal Officer at the Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service, was um, uh, particularly poignant. And, and, and she made the point that babies are being removed at birth from First Nations mothers living with a disability. Um, uh is that, is that, in your experience, a, a common practice? Yes, it is, uh, Daniel. And uh, myself today, I heard a new phrase which I found 
Um, deeply disturbing, very distressing. That phrase that uh, was used by um, during the testimony of birth sweet removals um, mm. was a deeply sort of sinister term and a very distressing one, wasn't it? And that idea of uh, First Nations children being removed virtually from the point of birth uh, is, is a deeply disturbing one and just goes to show that not only have we not made progress in terms of out-of-home care of First Nations young people and particularly First Nations children with disability, we clearly seem to be going backwards. And I think that's fair to say across every jurisdiction in the country. The, the Commission also heard today that um, uh, all children um, uh, uh, in out-of-home care at the moment equate to about 10,200, and of those... Uh, 10,200, 4,400 uh, First Nations people, and we can continue to see these numbers increase as a proportion. Is what can be done to to start reducing that? I mean, it's such a um, a, a large egg to unscramble. Where do we start with reducing some of these figures? Yeah, I, I think the the other thing, as you say, Daniel, that was shocking about that is that was just a Queensland figure. So um, amazing, yeah. That's not even a national figure. So um, you know, we're obviously both of us very disturbed by that. But I think one of the first things that needs to happen, and what we're calling for, is an immediate review of every single case that involves a first nation child with disability being removed from their family. We need to urgently review each and every one of those uh, situations to determine what led to that first nation child with disability being removed from their family. And I think we need to get um, to the point of really understanding the relationship between poverty and removal, uh, the racist and ableist elements to removal. Um, there is clearly still a system that has an inherent in institutional racism, but also we would say institutional ableism. We're also very concerned about First Nations parents with disability who end up having their children too because they are uh, deemed to be unfit parents when what they need is support. Um, they're just as capable and just as wanting to love their child as anyone else is. It's just the sometimes the extra supports might be required, but that's, that's fine. That's what the system should be responding to. Now, now, speaking of systems and, 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 and supports, obviously the NDIS was supposed to go some way to addressing some of these matters across the board, but is there any evidence um, at all of that positively working with um, other social services to support families to avoid child protection issues arising in the first place, or, or is there any evidence of it putting in place supports which prioritise children remaining with their family and away from child protection is has the NDIS made a, an impact on this at all so what what I would say to that Daniel is, is the national disability insurance scheme where we're seeing uh, Aboriginal people with disability and, and and Aboriginal families getting some positive outcomes it's more by chance than by design so right. um, there's still not enough First Nations people with disability getting access to the NDIS there's also a reality that you would be familiar with, I'm sure, that in regional mode Australia, there's no services to purchase. So yeah. in some ways, a market-driven approach, which the NDIS takes, is a bit of a nonsense in regional mode parts of uh, Australia. So it has to look different. 
and they're still it's still operating very much in a one size fits all sort of approach. Another major barrier we see, particularly for First Nations people with disability in regional and remote parts of Australia, is the cost of assessments. So getting an assessment so you can even get in the, the door of, of the NDIS is very costly and, and almost impossible to do in regional and remote parts of Australia, including in you know more regional parts of Victoria for that matter. So, yeah, it's got a very long way to go, a very long way to go. I'm speaking with Damien Griffiths, who is the CEO of the First People's Disability Network of Australia. We're talking about the Royal Commission that is being uh, held at the moment into um, into the neglect and uh, mistreatment of uh, people with disability. But this week, it's focusing on First Nations people's interface with the child protection system in particular. Um, you mentioned there, Damien, that um, the NDIS pretty much leaves market forces to determine some of the supports that are given to people with this disability. But I think it's fair to say across the board that market forces haven't traditionally been too supportive or too helpful to Aboriginal people. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Daniel. And I, and I think that's one of the problems we face here is that, I mean, I'd argue market-driven approaches to any human service mm. uh, is a flawed um, sort of ideology, if you like, and I think we've seen evidence of failing to that in other areas, such as uh, child care. Um, we've also, I think, seen that exposed in the aged care system, uh, where yeah. you have for-profit for providers, and one of the first things for for-profit people will do is to try and increase their profit, and one way you do that is to reduce the quality of your service. So, um, to me, it's really illogical and uh, something that's very problematic. And again, particularly for any Australian with disability living in regional mode Australia particularly. Yeah, they've, they've just got so many more um, hurdles to to jump over in terms of getting access to anything that's driven by, by the market. Um, the, the disability... Commission in a, in a media release that you put out earlier this, uh, or I think it was late last week, Damien, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you said that the Commission must look at uh, the structural violence that underlies the child protection system. Explain what you mean by structural violence. So what we mean there is firstly institutional racism um, mm-hmm. and institutional ableism and the rush to judge often in a way that it has unconscious bias, which results in First Nations children being removed from their families, which in in of itself is a violent act. And I think the evidence today uh, that we both heard at the Royal Commission really described that acutely and in very distressing terms. And we go back to that example of, again, that 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 phrase which is uh, haunting me today, I have to say, Daniel, that idea of birth sweet removals, I can't quite imagine a more violent act than that in many ways. So in a lot of ways, we're seeing things go backwards um, and we need to be working in a support-based system, system as opposed to a surveillance-based one. Well, what have been some of the other um, incredibly honest and, and, and brutal testimonies that, that have sort of resonated with you over the last few days? I think um, I sometimes worry about 
the defensive nature that sometimes governments have in response to these issues. It worries me a lot. As a, as a society, we, we are measured by how well we support our most vulnerable. Yep. And it's difficult to think of any more disadvantaged people than First Nations people with disability, and particularly First Nations children with disability. And if we're going to be judged on how our most vulnerable supported, then we're failing miserably as a country, I would argue. And we need to get back to valuing and respecting the community-based solutions that many communities have. Uh, and yeah. they need to be at the table to, to lead their own direction. And as you mentioned earlier, you're calling for an immediate nationwide review of every case that has resulted in the removal of First Nations child with a disability from, from their family. Um, another thing that you're calling for, and, and, and you just touched upon then, was you're calling on um, uh, a need for more First Nations disability advocates and better training for uh, child protection workers. I understand that without... Um, an appropriate advocate in this space, um, navigating some of the systems that uh, First Nations people with a disability have to navigate to get support is um, extremely difficult at the best of times. How, how would First Nations disability advocates help with that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we don't really have a First Nations disability advocacy program in Australia. Um, mm. And that's problem. So the staff in my organisation, we do have a caseload of individual advocacy matters that we take on, but we're not funded to do that work, but we'll never turn anyone away. Yeah. But an example I can give in regional New South Wales last week, several of my colleagues, and I realise we're talking to friends in Victoria today, but I think it's a good example of some of the challenges we face. So we had a community forum in, in mid-north coast of New South Wales last week and a number of very distressing matters were raised including situations where young Aboriginal people were being handcuffed and put in the back of paddy wagons. So this is not a simple um, individual advocacy matter to take on. They're often complex and they often involve training and building relationships with various authorities to try and make change. So we urgently need a well-resourced uh, and we'll find this First Nations Disability Advocacy Program around the country. Well, thank you so much for your time, Damien. It's been um, it's been a tough week. I know that uh, you're on the uh, front line of this, and that hearing some of the testimony that's been provided to the Royal Commission this week has been harrowing for you and harrowing for um, for many people, both with or without um, living with a disability. Is there anyone? Anywhere that um, people can go if they require support after hearing some of this testimony, just to um, perhaps debrief or have someone to listen to them? Well, we'd certainly encourage people to contact the First People's Disability Network. Daniel, we're always happy to talk to people and help them out. There are counselling services attached to the Disability Royal Commission, um, but people can buy, we're very welcome to contact the First People's Disability Network and we'll see what we can do. The other thing I might just quickly mention, if I may, sure. uh, next year we're going to be rolling out a human rights training program for First Nations people with disability and their families and their community across Victoria, where we'll be educating and informing community members about their disability rights. So really keen to, to get out and around Victoria and 
meet with mob and uh, and share with them and see if we can provide some support and, and some knowledge for them around disability rights. Well, fantastic. Let's uh, stay in touch with that, Damien, and when uh, it comes close to the time, we'll have another yarn about that and how people can get involved. But in the meantime, uh, meantime um, stay strong, look after yourself, and, and thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it, mate. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.